Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 25 here in just a moment. And let's have an awkward opening. Are we ready? Uh, I need to own something that happened last weekend in the services, and uh, it's very important for my heart that I get a chance to say this to the church. Uh, in a very flawed attempt to be funny last week, and uh, I played into a stereotype that made some ladies in our audience feel uh, demeaned. Uh, you might now. What's been funny is the last hour was like, "What did he say?" So it's probably going to be the most listened to sermon in the history of our church. But while joking last week about women wanting to bring something to every party they go to, the way that I depicted that in a moment of levity, it was was flawed humor. When I was just trying to bring some some lightness into the room, I made some women feel uncomfortable that I was making fun of them. And so I asked to be forgiven by each of them, and they were very willing to do so, which I'm grateful for. But I just felt it necessary because if I ever get in the way of the gospel message being preached, I'm wrong. And so last week, I made some people uncomfortable. If I made you feel uncomfortable last week, promise I'm going to learn from this one, and I'd ask you to forgive me too. Uh, We we believe in the power of women in this church. This church wouldn't operate without women, and we're grateful for them. And like I said, just failed humor last week. I got in the way, and I messed it up, and I'm really sorry. And if I offended you, please forgive me. I'll work on being better. And uh, for those of you who feel like right now you have to defend me, please don't. Please don't. I own this one. Uh, and I'll, I'll work better on, on being good at this. And if those of you who have been here long enough know I'm not really good at this, yeah, I know. I know. So uh, just appreciate that. Hear my heart. Uh, I don't want to ever get in the way of the message. And uh, last week I think I did. So off we go. Thank you. Thank you. Off we go. Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> this is one of those chapters we've been spending three weeks in now. It reminds me of John 7. I remember this summer coming back from being gone for a month of study and coming back and thinking, why did I not assign John 7 to somebody else? It's one of those really intense passages, and I want to be square with you. Uh, Luke 14, and especially where we're going today, will not be a popular message. The reason is because is it's hard. It's hard to hear, it's hard to understand, and it messes with our everyday choices. So are you excited about that? Are you ready? All right. So we're going to take a look at this. You might remember in the previous two pieces of Luke 14, there were two parables that Jesus told about people who wanted his kingdom but didn't want him as king. They wanted the benefits of what he was doing, but they did not want to give themselves to him. And he told parables over the last two weeks about what it means to be invited to his table and who gets invited. The unworthy get invited. And who stay at the table? Those who understand what a privilege it is to be a part of his kingdom. Today, he extends that in this chapter to talk about what it means to take him as a king. So here's what I want you to know. The gospel is not accepted without sacrifice. The gospel cannot be accepted without sacrifice. So the question of the morning is, are we coming to Jesus on his terms, or are we coming to him asking him to meet us on our terms? This is what he seems to be addressing in our text. So let's read it. Verses 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Listen to what he says here. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus seems to be teaching a crowd of people that wanted the kingdom without the king. They wanted the blessings without the effort. They wanted his faithfulness without their own. And he's speaking to them very specifically. And when he ends by saying, let he who has ears hear, in other words, Jesus is saying, I've told you what I expect of you. Respond. Do what I'm asking of you. And that's the text today. Discipleship will cost us. There's no discipleship without cost, and not minimal cost, great cost. Hate your family? Take up a cross? Give up everything you have? Seriously? Is this what he's asking of us? Is this what he really wants? Because three times, verses 26, 27, and verse 33, he's telling us, if we don't do these things, we are not his disciples. It's pretty clear. Are we coming to Jesus on his terms? Because he asks for three things. Specifically in this moment, he said to his audience, there's three things I expect of you. Let's look at what they are and understand how and why they should be a part of who we are as disciples. First is this. Jesus asks for supremacy in our love. He asks us to love him foremost, above all things. Nothing in a competitive stance against love for God. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But wait a second. Doesn't the Bible say to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment that comes with the promise? Doesn't Jesus say somewhere else that we're supposed to love our neighbor and love our enemy, even those who mean evil against us? Is he contradicting himself? Is Jesus just having a bad day? Is he just ripping the audience because he's tired of it? No, we have to understand what he's doing with the word hate and what he's doing with the word love. Now, I want to be really careful here. I don't want to soften Jesus' teachings so you like it because I don't like it. I wish it were different, but I understand why it is what it is because the reason I want it to be different is because I don't want to change me. I don't want to have to work hard. I want everything to be simple and easy and comfortable and just fit in my natural life. And that's not what discipleship is. And Jesus is saying, no, to be my disciple. He's not saying if you don't do these things, I won't have you. He's actually saying if you don't do these things, you won't have me. You see what he's doing here? So I'm not going to diminish the word hate, but I'm going to show you what he means when he says hate because he doesn't teach us to hate other people. But what he does say is, if you don't have a supreme love for God, you really can't love other people. You can't fulfill the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself until you've loved the Lord your God foremost. Church, just nod your head if you're tracking with me this morning. I don't want to keep saying it over and over and have people go, we got it an hour ago, okay? 
I actually want to have a conversation where you engage the text with me and realize what he's asking of us is a big deal. But it's not as big a deal as we can make it. So we continue. In Matthew 22, he was asked the question, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And I want you to notice what he does here because it'll help us understand. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what he's taught us is we have to, to understand love, we need to have received his love and then we love him in return We learn to love by the way he loves us, and that allows us to love everybody else. When he says you must hate your father and mother or whatever person you put before God, your spouse, your children, those who can bless you, when you put other people and you love them more than you love God, you've got love reversed. God's not an egotist. He's not up there going, if you don't care about me more than anyone else, I'm going to hate all of you. He doesn't do that. What he's saying is you really can't love your neighbor. You really can't love your enemy. You really can't love your wife. You can't love your husband. You can't love your kids. You can't love your brothers and sisters. You can't love society until you have God's love figured out. Are you with me? When we get the supreme love of God for us, it draws from us a supreme love for him. And from that love, it splashes over every other relationship we have. If we get them reversed, We're still loving a God, but that God may be our spouse or our kids or our neighbors or our boss or our friends that make us feel good about ourselves rather than the love that God gave us. So we're to love our neighbor. Our love for him must be supreme if we actually want to love anybody else well. We have to begin with the perfect love, the unconditional love. So why does he say hate? Because when you love God... It's going to appear that you just don't love other people the same way, but in truth, you love them in a better way. Our world demands that everyone be put as our top priority. Major problems in marriages come down to a husband and a wife saying, you don't love me enough. It's because we don't love them well. It's not a matter of enough. It's a matter of the priorities that we've placed on loving something else foremost. And God says, when you love me and you get love for me right, You'll actually know how to satisfy other people with the love that they're looking for. Not a love that just receives, but a love that gives. It changes our perspective. Because when we can love people with the same love that we love God, it changes everything. You see, I know we live in a world and it's really difficult. And I I perpetuate this at times. It's another thing I could apologize for. It's really easy to say, you have to do this, this, and this. If you're not doing these things, you don't measure up. Now, what Jesus is saying to us is, it's not that he won't receive us, it's that we don't receive him. Because the things that he's asking us to give him are things that we should naturally give him when we understand who he is and what he's done. But for many of us, we love God begrudgingly. It's like those moments when we were told as kids, it's your time to take the trash out. And of course, you don't get to take the trash out. It's not your night when it's a beautiful summer night and it's like 68 degrees and the stars are out and it's quiet and you roll it to the curb and you're just grateful to be outdoors. No, most of us felt like the only night we took the trash out is when it was minus 14 in a blizzard, dark, and there were you know, enemies out there in the bushes ready to kill us. And so we're like, well, no, you're a part of this home. Take the trash out. And we're like, okay. And the whole way out, we grouse and complain and it's unfair and we're mistreated. And I think sometimes as believers, I wonder if we don't do that toward God. I have to read my Bible, I have to pray, I have to go to church, I have to give, I have to serve, I have to... No, no, you don't have to do anything. You get to. 
You get to serve Jesus. You get to love Jesus. You get to read your scriptures and understand him. You get to have a conversation with him. These are privileges, not obligations. And when they're obligations, then we need to remember, we need to check our love. Because when we won't make time to pray, it's because we love time selfishly. When we won't give to causes that need given to so other people can know Jesus, it's not, it's not because we love Jesus, it's because we love our money. It's when we don't want to serve and sacrifice, it's not because we don't think it's worth doing, it's because, no, we love our comfort more than we actually love the one we serve. So Jesus is calling us to say, all of this begins with love. It's the greatest of them. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is what? It's love. So he's unashamed to say, when you know me, you'll love me supremely, and then you'll be my disciple, because everything else falls in line. You see, it's not an obligation. Christianity is not a begrudging obedience to make up for your past mistakes. Christianity is a love relationship between two people who get each other. We get him, and he gets us. He's kind of getting ripped off, isn't he? But if he's cool with it, I am. So, it is absolute, a supreme love. Second of all, he asks for exclusive loyalty. He's looking for a choice that we get to make to make him the most important. Not only just love him because we know what he's done and we know who he is and we know that he loves us, but we also are loyal to him and we'll choose him even over ourselves. Verse 27, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The concept of carrying the cross has become a cliche. Now, cliches matter because at one point in time, they were true, and everybody said they're true, and so because they're true, I'll believe it. And then we use it so much, we ruin it. Well, carrying the cross, I've actually heard this in my lifetime. If you said it in front of me, I'm not making fun of you, but the concept is we need to redeem carrying the cross because some people are like, well, you know, I had to work overtime this weekend and and miss my kid's ball game. It's a cross I have to carry. Stop it. That is not what that term means. Let me ask you a simple question. A person carrying the cross, what is their condition at the end of carrying the cross? Dead. The only, the only time you carry a cross is to go die. Jesus is using this imagery. It's beautiful because he's foreshadowing what he's going to do when he carries his cross. Everybody knew that the only people who carried a cross were convicted criminals. Do you see what he's saying to us? Until you and I realize that he carried our cross for us, that we then will carry his cross in suffering, we will carry his cross in testimony, we will carry his cross in persecution. That he carried my cross and died the death I deserve, I will carry his cross by showing his cross to everyone I meet and offering them the hope of, of the crucifixion. That his sacrifice matters. See, everything is over for you. When you know you're going to die, some of the things that are so important today won't be important. When any of us realizes we're terminal, we stop worrying about if we're up on the latest TV show or how our sports team did or this or this or this. We stop and realize, no, no, when I realize how loved I am and how much he sacrificed for me and he tells me to carry the cross, I will carry the cross. I will give up my dreams, my goals, my ambitions, my desires for himself. I will give up my comfort. I will pay any, any price for this person. Jesus says we die to the life we live Paul would put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
Paul is teaching us is what Jesus wants from us is to understand that he has made a trade and he has gone and accepted our punishment so that we could be free. Free to do what? Free to create an army of believers who have been saved by his blood to go into the world and offer it to everybody else. Go back to two weeks ago. We get the beauty of offering a place at Jesus' table to anyone we meet, anyone no matter what they've done or where they've been or what they've believed, or it doesn't matter, that the king is inviting them by his mercy to his table. And only those who understand how merciful he is will come. And they will humble themselves and they will sit there and they will pledge loyalty to him because of the loyalty he's pledged to them. You see, no longer do I live a self-determined life. I live a Jesus-determined life. This is why we, we are called to say, not my will be done, but his will be done. I'm choosing to, to pick what Jesus wants, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then, here's the beautiful part, all these things will be added. He says, who would build a house or build a building and realize halfway through, huh, I don't have enough money. And so there it sits, the foundation with a couple of posts in the air, and everyone goes, what was that? I don't know, I think he had an idea. But then he stopped. Or who would go into a battle, a life and death situation, and, and walk in and go, ah, let's fight, and then realize, oh no, you outnumber me two to one. Never mind. Jesus said, isn't that foolish? And of course his audience is like, yeah, that's really dumb. And he's like, uh-huh. And so is the person who says, I want to be part of your kingdom. And he says, well, here's the cost of being in my kingdom. And you're like, nah, I'm good. Jesus said, this is, remember, this was the audience he was speaking to. I remember as a kid, my mom used to tell a story that during World War II, she was between the ages of eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that range, uh, just a young kid, and she remembered that when the war started, the tragedy was there was no bubble gum. Because the rubber was being used for the war efforts, you couldn't buy bubble gum. And my mom said she just remembered as a kid, and then one time she, a bunch of her friends were all excited because the store in their town in Ohio had gum in the store, and this was unusual during wartime. And so she went home and asked her, my grandpa, she asked her dad if she could have money to buy bubble gum. And my grandfather said, no, you don't need gum. Until the war's over, we're gonna let them use that for the right reasons. And my mom says, as an eight or nine-year-old, she just remembered how much she was sacrificing for the cause. <laughs> she said as a kid, she's like, oh man, it was rough, but we made it. Four years without a bubble. Now, as a kid, that was a real sacrifice, though, right? Would you agree with me? I'm not making fun of it. I'm really nervous right now, but any joke, okay? I, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of it. What I'm really saying is, as a kid, that was a sacrifice. She chose. But here's the beauty. Talk to this 80-year-old woman now, and you know what she'll tell you? I didn't sacrifice anything. Soldiers sacrificed something. They paid the real price. I just did without comfort and convenience. And here's what I want you to know why I told you that story. Because one day, all the things you're thinking right now, I don't know if I could give that up. You could. And when you gave it up for Jesus and got him in return, you'd look back on it in about two years and go, I can't believe I was sweating that. That was nothing. I gave up nothing compared to what I received. Don't you agree? That if we just have a long look at what we're giving up, it's garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ personally and all that he can offer. So supreme love, exclusive loyalty, and lastly, if that's not enough, Jesus asks for a complete sacrifice. A complete sacrifice. Not a partial one, not a temporary one, but a big one, a real one. Verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. 
For the cause of Christ, everything we have is expendable. Everything we dreamed of becoming is optional. Everything that we think we need to be happy is only laid down before Jesus. And if he gives it back, he gives it back. And if he doesn't, we leave it alone. Church, are you with me? Remember at the beginning when I told you you wouldn't like this sermon? I see it. You're like, wow, that's a whole lot to think about. No, no, please understand. I'm going to show you how we're able to do this. And it won't be by willpower. It'll be by understanding and the Holy Spirit. You see, the give up there means to abandon or give up the rights of ownership. What G- I'm not softening this. I believe this is what he's saying. When he says you've got to give up everything, what he's simply saying is everything that you've been given is now used for the kingdom or leave it alone. Leave it, let it go. If it can't be used for the kingdom and it can't grow the glory of the kingdom and the invitation to sit at the great banquet with the merciful king, if it doesn't have a purpose for that, let it alone. Leave it alone. You can abandon it. You don't need it. But it could be something that he uses. So I'm not saying if you have a nice home or a nice vehicle or a boat or, or whatever you have that you seem as a luxury and you're like, well, here goes the preacher. He's trying to get it liquidated. Nope. I'm not. I'm simply telling you this. If that cabin and cottage and that boat and that car and that house and that, those golf clubs and that talent and that skill, I can go all day. If those things can't be used to shine the glory of who Jesus is into this world, it owns you. You don't own it. Abandon it. If it can be used for the kingdom and show the glory of Jesus Christ, use it. Use it for him. He doesn't shame anybody for having things. He does challenge us not to let things have us. And so when he calls us to leave it down, it changes our look of possessions. I want to share with you, and this might be, for those of you who don't have a place you're studying the Bible right now, I can give you one day's worth. Read Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. Uh, The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are comparing what they've had in the Jewish lifestyle to what Jesus is offering them, and he's making comparisons, or she's making comparisons, the author is, between Jesus is better than this and this and this and this. When he gets to chapter 10, or she gets to chapter 10 and 11, the author is using terminology about what they sacrificed to follow Jesus. And he even says in verse 34 of chapter 10, it won't appear on the screen, but I was looking at it this morning, you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In chapter 10, the author says... What you gave up didn't matter to you because you realized it wasn't worth what you were gaining. And then in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, the author says this. Look at the words with me. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Notice what the author of Hebrews writes. Some people start following Jesus and just turn around and go back home because at least at home they're comfortable. But those who really understand who Jesus is, they give him their love. They give him their loyalty. And they abandon the things that don't matter to hold on to something that's going to matter forever. You see, when we realize the price we've paid, the reward will make us seem like we've paid no price at all. So how do you do this? How do you and I actually give a supreme love 
an exclusive loyalty and abandon the things that make our lives comfortable and peaceful and even, unfortunately, give us our identity. Well, the only example that I can give you of how to do this is look at the example that Jesus did for us. I get good news for you, church. Jesus never asks you and I to do anything he has not already done. In fact, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. And if we look at what he's offering us, we'll understand how we can live out a discipleship based on his expectations, based on his terms. The first is, would you agree with me that Jesus was supremely loving toward us? Would you agree that he chose to love us even over and above himself? So why would I hate father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and even myself in comparison to Christ? Because Jesus showed us that the greatest love says no to me and says yes to everyone else. It's not hatred. It's actually an unselfish love. Not a love that takes advantage of the relationships I have that give me my place. It's actually abandoning my place and loving Jesus like he loved me. We know how to love because he first loved us, the Apostle John wrote. His love teaches me. His love teaches me there's a reward in finding out what real love does to me and through me. Would you agree that Jesus was supremely loyal? Yet he chose to do his Father's will over and above his own comfort. Can you hear the words of Jesus? I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, our lives are grounded on Jesus' faithfulness, not our success. He's not asked us to be awesome. He's not asked us to be successful or historic. He's not asked us even to go into all the world as individuals and make a huge dent for the kingdom so everyone will know about us. He simply said, tell them about me. Demonstrate my love to them. Demonstrate the fact that you have chosen to be my disciple, to carry your cross, to deny yourself. Give them the example I gave you. See, one of the ways we can do this is simply looking at Jesus himself and appreciating who he is, and then we'll love him more and our loyalty will come natural. And then, of course, you'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that Jesus sacrificed the supreme cost? He gave up everything. Paul says he gave up all the best parts of heaven to come to the worst parts of earth so that we would understand him. And by understanding him, know his love, know his impact, and know his investment. C.S. Lewis is a famous English author, and uh, actually Irish, and, and Lewis lived in, and taught in the UK. And so his example, I want to translate it into American vernacular, and it was written in the 1940s during World War II. And so it's a little bit dated, but see if you can track with me what he says here. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. What he's saying is when Jesus calls us, the ask is big. Love me only. Be loyal to me only. And give up your only life to find life in me. And we think, how can we do that? And he says, through me. Because I have loved you before you loved me. I have been loyal to you when you were my enemy. And I gave up everything so you would understand that I gave up nothing. Because in God's faithfulness, everything we give up will be returned. 
I know the stories in this room. I know some of you have lost friendships over Christianity. I know, I know some high school students that are struggling because they're trying to stand up for what's right and what's good, and they're saying, no, I don't want to be a part of that. And they've lost relationships, they've lost status, and they wonder deep in their soul, is it worth it? I tell you right now, don't accept mud pies when you can spend a vacation on the beach. Because the games we're playing in this world, we're told they're the most important things because it's all we know. And Jesus said, look at me and let me open your minds to what I'm bringing to you and then bring it to other people. See, the only way we can live this life out is when we realize that Jesus already did. That's why he said, it's not you can't be my disciples because I won't have you. So some of us are choosing not to be his disciples because we won't have him. And when we taste how good he is, nothing else will compare. So this morning, my prayer is that you'll spend some time today looking at the supremacy of Jesus. Look at him, not anything else. Don't look at your rewards and riches. Look at him. If you've never realized who he is and you're seeing him now for the very first time, what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to confess that he is the Lord of all. You're supposed to say, I renounce my sin, I renounce my loyalties, I renounce the things I love, and I'm going to choose to love and be loyal to Jesus only. And then you're going to lay down your life. And what does that mean? You're going to see in just a few moments what this is. You're going to be taken into the waters of baptism and washed clean. And Paul tells us that in that moment, the Spirit of God comes upon us, and we take into the resurrection, burial and resurrection of Jesus, and we walk in newness of life. We offer you a chance, if you've never done this, to stand up and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I now realize who he is, and I want to be just like him. I want to give my life to him. And for those of us who once did that, now we find ourselves, we're not that loving, we're not loyal, and we've really gotten more comfortable and sacrificial. Then the good news is, Jesus isn't nearly as worried about you yesterday as he is about you right now. Will you see him for who he is and follow him again? Will you get back to being his disciple and pursuing him wholeheartedly? That's what we offer you today. I'm going to ask you, normally I'll ask you to stand as I leave the stage, but I'm going to encourage those of you who'd like to make a decision, especially for those of you who have never followed Jesus, and you're like, I see who he is, and I want this in my life. I need him. I need to give myself to him. Around this table are uh, tables with uh, lamps lit, and our elders and some of our staff are going to be going to these tables in just a moment, and you can go anytime during our service or after the service to meet us at these tables and have a conversation. But I'm going to ask you to remain seated for just a few moments. This chip is going to give us something to think about, about today's teaching, a challenge for each one of us to personalize our love, our loyalty, and our cost. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.